If you'll take your Bibles, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to begin reading at verse 23. quite that much. We're going to begin reading in verse 23 and and read to the end of the chapter. The former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. As we consider these words, recognize that the entire book of Hebrews is is a lengthy, careful defense of the supremacy of Jesus Christ in every aspect, but especially as, as our priest, as our Savior, as the sacrifice which brought us eternal life. And we've been dealing with the weaknesses and the uh, the failures of the Old Testament system to bring about salvation. And so I'm not going to belabor the point, but I do need to touch on the issue raised in verse 23. And that is that death is, is a significant problem. The former priests, it says, the Levitical priests, existed in greater numbers because they died. They died just as everyone dies, and they had to be replaced. Death is a huge problem. Death brings everything to a stop. And when it says that they existed in greater numbers, that, that's accurate, but it's almost an understatement. The, the, the sacrificial system was in place for uh, somewhere between 1,400 and 1,500 years, from the time of the Exodus to the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., During that period of time, there were hundreds of thousands of priests. A historian wrote that in the first century, there were about 20,000 priests at any given time. Um, Those priests were divided into 24 groups called divisions or courses, and they served two weeks at the temple every year. That's 48 weeks. The remaining weeks were covered or were represented by the major feasts, and all the priests served at the temple during the major feasts. So hundreds of thousands of men mediated for tens of millions of Jews. We think that probably three million men and women and children left Egypt at the time of the census that King David conducted about 400 years later. There were about five million total. There was a... uh, a significant reduction in the number of people in Israel because of the captivity. 
uh, 40 or 50,000 came back at the end of the captivity, but that doesn't mean that only 40 or 50,000 had survived. And by the time we get to the first century, there's at least 2 million. So it's not hard to think that during those 1,400 years, there were 60 or 70 or 80 million Jews in total. Hundreds of thousands of men offered sacrifices for tens of millions of Jews. The sacrifices... Uh, are mandatory to a great degree. You've, you've got the Passover, the Feast of uh, Unleavened Bread around the time of the Passover. You have the Feast of Pentecost. You have the New Year, Rosh Hashanah. You have the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And you have the Feast of Tabernacles. Those three feast periods were mandatory for every, every Jewish man. In addition, you have lesser feasts and you have the weekly Sabbath and offerings being made there. You also have the fact that you as a man, you as a woman are going to be bringing sacrifices to the temple every year for your own sins. When a baby is born, there's a sacrifice for the child. There's a sacrifice for the mother. It's not hard to imagine then that the hundreds of thousands of priests offered hundreds of millions of sacrifices for hundreds or for tens of millions of people. And here's the thing. All of these hundreds of thousands of priests died. This system went on and on and on. It never stopped. It never ended. You remember Jesus on the cross at the end of his sacrifice said, it is finished. That's something the law can never say. The law is not a straight line that begins with our sin and takes us through justification. The law is a circle. It never stops. Peter in Acts chapter 15, when the church is meeting to discuss the issue of Gentiles and the, the responsibility of Gentiles from a, a, a ritual point of view, after they've discussed how, whether the Gentiles should keep the law and to what extent and how, Peter stood up and he, and he said, why would we put on them a, a yoke, this is his description, a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Referring to the law. The yoke that Peter and their fathers couldn't bear wasn't the moral code. The, the, the prohibition against murder and adultery isn't unbearable. The yoke, the, the unbearable part of this was the endless cycle of, of sacrifices. The fact that it was never, ever, ever finished. As you lived your life in that time, as, as you engaged in full faith with true repentance and true faith in that system, the result was a, a temporary peace with God that was made with great difficulty and which could be shattered in the blink of an eye. The law, it says earlier in Hebrews chapter 7, in verses 18 and 19, is weak and useless because it makes nothing perfect. So let's stop and, and think about this for a moment. The law is good when we give it its rightful place. The law is holy, is holy and good, and the commandment is just and righteous and good. Romans chapter 7 says the law serves as a tutor. It shows me my sin. It reveals a need for the Savior. And the details of the law point that out. The, the existence of the law, as I said last week, is also a promise that there is a fullness of redemption coming. There's a perfect solution coming and has now been fulfilled in Christ. But as we know, the law can't save. You could offer a sacrifice every day. 
multiple sacrifices every day and still up in, end up in hell for all eternity because the law is weak and useless. What's true about the law is true about the priesthood. It's weak and useless. And what's true about the law and the priesthood is true about the priests. They're weak and useless. And so we're going to turn our attention to the Lord Jesus Christ and what is said about him here. And what we see, I believe, are four declarations made about Christ that should fill us with joy, fill us with hope, fill us with a strength of faith and a purposeful faith. This first declaration is that there is an eternal Savior who possesses an eternal priesthood. So verses 23 and 24, the former priests existed in greater numbers because they died. Verse 24, but Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Uh, it, it, It probably sounds like a basic truth. I think it is a basic truth. But it's the basis for everything that's promised by God regarding our salvation. We have a high priest who is eternal. And because he is eternal, he never stops being a high priest. He never gives that up. Whenever the New Testament speaks of men like Moses or Abraham, David, Elijah, Jonah, any of those men, it speaks of them as men of history who have died, who have passed on. They've had their time. Now we have their, their writings. We have uh, the, the, the works of their life. We have the scriptures that either were written by them or speak of them. But they're historical figures. They're, they're dead and gone. The New Testament, the, the books between, uh, of Acts through Revelation, excluding the Gospels, mention Jesus almost 2,000 times. And he is never presented as a dead historical figure. He is always presented as the living Lord of glory. He is a living Savior, an eternal Savior with an eternal priesthood. So, Selah, let's stop and think about this for a moment. Christianity is not something that we do in memoriam to Christ. It is not looking at who Jesus was and saying, wow, I've got such huge respect for this man who lived and who died that I want to pattern my life after him. Much of the world does that. In fact, much of the so-called self-claimed Christian world basically treats Jesus as a dead, respectable figure. But Christianity is not lived in memoriam. It is a living relationship with the living Savior. Some of you came to Christ early in life. You don't remember when. Others of you came to Christ later in life, and and you might remember when. When Jesus called Peter and Andrew and John and James to follow him, we can go to the Gospels and we can see that there was a day, there was a historical moment when he called them to follow him. He called me to follow him at a specific moment, at at a moment in human history. It's not a moment any of, any of the rest of humanity really cares about. It's not recorded in any books, but it could be. It was a historical day, August 13th, 1978. When Jesus called them, he was physically present at the Sea of Galilee. They were in their boats working with their father. He walked up, called out to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He wasn't physically present with me in that Jeep Cherokee on that mountain road in California, but he was spiritually present and he called me, follow me. He called to me. 
called me into a living relationship with himself. So Jesus Christ is alive and well. If you're in Christ, you're called to a daily living relationship with him. It's not a dead relationship. He hasn't retired. He hasn't passed on. And he hasn't given any of these responsibilities that he has over to some subordinate. Years ago, years ago, when we were homeschooling, Linda had the idea that our kids could write uh, President George W. Bush and Laura Bush. I don't know if they remember that, but they wrote these letters. And I don't know how many weeks later, we got a response. They got a response. And when you read the letter, then it's signed George W. Bush uh, or Laura Bush. But, of course, it wasn't signed by George W. Bush or by Laura Bush. It was signed by a machine. Some subordinate took the letter, read it, actually responded. They didn't just get a thanks for your vote account, not at you know, seven years old. They actually got a response, but their letters were never seen by the president or by the first lady. That's just how that world works. But when you come before Jesus Christ, you're not coming to a subordinate. You're not coming to anybody but himself. Paul writes Timothy this, there is one God and one mediator also between God and man or God and men, the man Christ Jesus. You notice that little verb is. There is one God. And we extend it into the next phrase. There is one mediator. Not there is one God and there was one mediator. There is one God and there is one mediator. He's still the mediator. Jesus is an eternal savior with an eternal priesthood. And he is busy carrying out that priesthood. The second declaration is that with this eternal priesthood, Jesus gives eternal salvation. Verses 24 and 25. Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Let let me rephrase this just a little bit. Jesus, on the other hand, because he is eternal, holds his priesthood eternally. Therefore, he is also able to save eternally those who come to God through him since he, all, since he lives eternally to make intercession for them. Eternal, 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 eternal. He is eternal. The salvation that he gives is eternal. The sacrificial work of Jesus is done. That's accomplished. His death is accomplished. This is what we see in Romans chapter 8. Christ Jesus is he who died, past tense. Yes, rather, who was raised, past tense. Who is, present tense, at the right hand of God. Who also intercedes, present tense, for us. His death and resurrection are historical realities. But he is alive and and well and at the right hand of God and is interceding for us constantly. He always lives to make intercession for us so let's stop and and think about this if you're in christ by grace through faith then jesus christ is your intercessor he's praying for you at this very moment he's lifting you up before the father at this very moment he is keeping you by his prayers he is strengthening you by his prayers he is preserving you by his prayers If you want to think about each need that you have, 
as a grain of sand and, and having a, a bucket full of need. What you and I do is, is once or twice a day, perhaps we, we pick out a couple of grains of sand and we lift them up and we say, here's my need. And we really hope that he sees that need, that thing. And what we don't understand is that he's praying for every single grain of sand in that bucket all the time. He is lifting it all up before the Lord. He has been and is and will be praying for you in your grief and your confusion and your fear and your doubt. He, he will never stop. He will never forget you. He's never too busy to intercede for you. Before little David James was kidnapped, the Lord knew what was going to take place. He permitted it to take place. He could have restrained those men and he chose not to. He has permitted it for his glory and for the good of those who are of his name and for the judgment of those who are wicked. What about the parents? They're going to the Lord when they first found out that their son had been kidnapped. Or, uh, and I don't know the circumstances. Maybe the men came in with guns and pointed guns at them and took him away. We don't know. I don't know. But don't you know that in that moment, in that burst of panic, they, 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 they began to pray a little? I mean, you're panicking, you're running, you're yelling for help, you're doing all kinds of things, but, but your heart is beginning to cry out to God and hoping God hears. Jesus had been praying for them regarding this before it ever happened. And don't you know, don't you think that they're praying, Lord, strengthen us? And, and he is. And they're, they're saying, I, I feel so close to falling, but they're not falling. And somebody, some of them might even say, I, I feel so close, close to losing hope, but they're not losing hope. They might say, I'm too weak for this. And they're right. They are too weak for this, but he's strong for this. They're not going to hang on to him because they're great. He's going to hang on to them because he's great and they're weak. So Jesus is never too busy to intercede for you. When you come to him, you're not interrupting his work because you are his work. This is what he does. This is his job right now. He never sleeps. He never takes a break. He gives you his undivided attention and he gives me his undivided attention. He can do that because he's God. Declaration number three is Jesus is the right high priest. He is the high priest that we need. So we read in verse 26, it was fitting for us. That word fitting means appropriate or necessary or right. It was fitting. It was appropriate for us to have this kind of high priest who always lives to make intercession, who is holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. You know, when we call somebody to believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, to abandon traditions, man-centered religion, human self-sufficiency, to walk away from sin, and to cry out to Christ, are we just arguing over opinions and values? No. We're declaring them what is absolutely true and we can be utterly confident in the surpassing greatness of christ look what's said here he's holy 
He's absolutely pure in nature. He's unmixed in nature. He's uncontaminated. He's free from any contamination or pollution. He is perfectly and utterly righteous before God. He is innocent. That means that he's harmless. He's never harmed anyone. He's never injured anyone. He's never wronged anyone. He's undefiled. That means that he began in holiness and he lived a sinless life and, and then he ascended as pure as when he came. The Bible says bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company corrupts good morals. We all know it. We all know that, that there have been people in our past we shouldn't have hung around because hanging around them defiled us. It, it raised issues for us that should never have been raised. Well, I want you to think about this. No one was ever in worse company than Jesus of Nazareth. The constant accusation of the leaders was that he hangs around with tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners, gluttons, drunks. They called him a friend of sinners. They accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard because he he was with them all the time. And yet he was never defiled by them. He was numbered with the transgressors, Isaiah 53 says, but he was never numbered as a transgressor. He was so close to them that the accusation was made, but he was never changed by them. Our high priest is separated from sinners. Think about Jesus being within touching distance of wicked people on a regular basis. In fact, there was one moment where he goes in the Pharisee's house to have supper. And while they're eating, the prostitute comes in and she anoints Jesus. And the, the, the Pharisee is thinking to himself, if this man was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is and he would not let her touch him. And then Jesus rebuked him because of his hypocrisy. Jesus was touched by sinners all the time. But he was always separate in his character and his nature from them. And our high priest is exalted above the heavens. He was made for a while lower than the angels. He humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. He was buried, placed in the ground, but then he was raised, glorified, exalted, and ascended to heaven. He's now in the heavenly tabernacle in the presence of God the Father where he is enthroned as king and is interceding for us as high priest. He is exalted above the heavens. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, eternal in nature. So let's pause and think about this. Let's have our little Selah moment. Paul said this, May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. May it, never, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We should never boast in ourselves. We should never brag about ourselves. We're always going to wrongfully exalt ourselves and exaggerate our abilities. But we can, and in fact, we must boast in Jesus Christ. We must be proud of him. He is not just better, he's best. It's his lordship that rules the earth, even now. He is the Savior. He is the King. It's His Word that dominates our lives. It is His purpose that governs human life and all of existence on earth. And it's precisely because of these characteristics that Jesus 
was able to obtain perfect final salvation for those who believe in him. Uh, People have said to me, I need a priest who's like me. I need a minister who's like me. No, you don't. You don't. A priest who's like you can't help you. A priest who's like you can't save you. A priest like you would need salvation. That's the whole point of verse 27. The Levitical high priest needed to offer up sacrifices first for their own sins and on a daily basis. Jesus never needed to do that because he is holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And so we call all sinners, and it doesn't matter whether they're atheists or whether they're, whether they're religious, whether they're Hindus, Baptists, Jews, Lutherans, Buddhists, uh, Mormons, Roman Catholics, Satanists, Pentecostals, it doesn't matter. We call them to repent of their sins and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. We can join any one of those groups simply by going through the motions. Some of us may have in, in a previous point in life. The world is offended by him. So be it. If you happen to catch the interview between Ben Shapiro, or Ben Shapiro's interview, rather, of, of Pastor John MacArthur, there was a point, I think, where Shapiro asked if MacArthur wasn't at risk of offending somebody. And MacArthur said, my job is to offend everybody. I preach the word, and the word offends sinners. And so if we aim at not offending people, we're aiming in the wrong direction. We ought to be boasting in our Savior. And, and I think that this is such an important point to make, thinking about little David James, thinking about Philip who is preaching in Uganda in refugee camps, and Lana who is there taking care of their children and ministering in her own way to, to people who need the Savior. They live in a place where opposition to the gospel means your child is kidnapped. Maybe at gunpoint. We live in a point where opposition to the gospel means that somebody might call us, might not call us for coffee. We have brothers and sisters who live in places where opposition to the gospel means imprisonment and torture and death. And in our world, opposition to the gospel means people might talk about us behind our back. American Christianity is often very proud Christianity. And in a lot of ways, we've been blessed enormously by the Lord, but not in this way. And the heroes of the faith in America are few and far between. But we've got heroes of the faith in China, North Korea, Myanmar, Saudi Arabia, Uh, Uganda, who are laying their lives on the line, who know that what they do may very well at any time bring about arrest, torture, poverty, intense suffering. They're not afraid to boast in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? In the United States, people would say, well, you do it for the money. I've been accused of doing what I do for the money. It's like, well, then I'm not very good at it. We do it because we're just boastful and proud. It's just human tradition. There's no reason for a Christian in China to stand up on a street corner and say, I follow Jesus Christ and this kingdom is going to die and I urge you to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus. There's no point for a Christian in Uganda to go into a refugee camp filled with Muslims and say, Muhammad is a false prophet, Allah is a false God, and Jesus Christ is the only Savior. 
when the only thing that is going to come back toward them is violence and hatred. See, we must boast in who Jesus Christ is. The, the fourth declaration is that Jesus died once for all. We see this in verse 27. The Levitical high priests had to offer up sacrifices daily for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did this once for all when he offered up himself. The law appoints men as high priests who are weak. And so they have to make those daily sacrifices. The word of the oath, which came after, after the law, appoints a son who is made perfect forever and whose singular sacrifice made all the difference. Jesus died once. He just died once, one time. He died at a specific moment in, in history. If we were clever enough and we could get past the, the reordering of the calendar to the Gregorian calendar several hundred years ago and the other time constraints, we could actually go to back in a time machine to that day and that afternoon as Jesus hung dying on the cross. We could actually be there when he said, it is finished because he said it at a point in history. He did it one time. Having died once, he will never die again. I heard a man once say in a a different church as he was leading communion, when you sin, God goes back in time and puts that sin on Jesus. No, when Jesus died, he died once for all. He died once for all time. He died once for all of his people. He died once for all of their sin. He died just once. I have Hebrews 9 in there, and hopefully it won't mess up my recording, but you never know. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 25 and 26, beginning at verse 24 is a better way to go. For Christ did not enter into a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor, nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year after year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Jesus would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus died once. That's it. That's all that was necessary by his single sacrifice on the cross. The full purpose of God in justifying his people was accomplished. So let's stop and think about this. If you're in Christ through faith, then the fullness of the wrath of God against you has been borne by the Lord Jesus. God will never again be wrathful against you. That doesn't mean that you don't face discipline. As a child, when we get to Hebrews 12, we're going to see that. There's a lengthy statement about God disciplining disciplining his children. But that discipline, this is what he says, If you are without discipline, you are not sons. If God is not disciplining you in your life as you live in Christ, you're not his. So the idea that Jesus died and therefore there's no consequences is not true. But Jesus died and there is no longer wrath. There is no longer judgment. If you've trusted Christ, you're his elect. He died for you once for all time. And you can't out his death. You can't commit a sin his death didn't anticipate. If we could take the, 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 the roof off of this room and fill this room with the grace of God, 
And tomorrow morning when you get up and, and you sin, then you take a teaspoon and you, you take enough grace of God to cover your sin, a teaspoon, and throw it out. And all day tomorrow as you sin, you take teaspoons out. And sometime tomorrow night you're going to go to bed and we're going to trust in what the Bible says in Lamentations chapter 3. His mercies are new every morning. And when you get up Tuesday morning, he will have filled this room back up with grace. You can't out the grace of God. Romans 5 says, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. So if, if we're going to add sin to sin and double it, then we are going to multiply grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. If sin goes from 10 to 20, grace goes from 100 to a million. You can't out the grace of God. It's such a, a true point that Paul has to make the point in chapter, Romans chapter 6. Now, the reason that God did this was not so that you could just go on sinning. Because anybody in their normal mind would look at what he says, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more, and say, then the more I sin, the more grace I get. And that's true. Paul doesn't say that's not true. He just says that's not why grace was given. Grace was given to set you free from sin, not to enable you to live in it. The hope of the gospel is not that we can go back to an Old Testament sacrificial system like the writer to the Hebrews is addressing here. The hope of the gospel is not that we can do acts of penance when we've sinned to get ourselves back into acceptance by God. By acts of penance, by the way, I I don't mean to attack simply the Roman Catholic Church. Every one of us has our acts of penance. You think about it just for a moment. You think about a sin that you commit. And when you've committed that sin, what do you do? You start thinking, what do I need to do? I need to read my Bible more. I'm going to put on worship music. I need to go apologize to that person. I need to promise never to do this again. I need to feel bad. Those are all acts of penance. Repentance is good. Grieving over our sin is good. Making restitution for our sin is good. If we've exposed ourselves to the wrong kinds of input, maybe putting on worship music and going to the Word is good. I'm not saying it's not good. I'm saying it can't make you better with God. Jesus bore that entirely on Himself. And when we sin, the Bible gives us all the same fix. 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's our hope. That's what we do. So the hope of the gospel, which we should boastfully declare in the Lord Jesus Christ, is that a perfect offering has been made for sin once for all time, that it is available by the grace of God to all who believe in Christ. There is an all-sufficient Savior and there is peace with God because of his high priestly work. My prayer is that you'll think about this passage of Scripture. That you'll think about the the things that I've pointed out and that I have pointed you to in the text. So that you can preach this gospel to yourself when you need to hear it. You can preach it to others when they need to hear it. You're going to meet Christians this week who are burdened under the weight of their sin and the weight of their guilt, and the weight of a dirty conscience. I don't know that we have the right to a clean conscience, but Jesus gives us a free conscience. He sets us free from that guilt. And we're sure to meet people who are not Christians. 
And rather than, than saying, as is so common in our time, consider Christ. We can go further than that and boldly call upon people to trust in the Savior because He is so all-sufficient, because He has died our all-sufficient Savior. Father, we thank You for the love that You have for us and the way that You have blessed us with the Scriptures which tell us about this far greater blessing of Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask for uh, all of us that we would continue to live vitally within the hope and the power and the truth of the gospel. That while we should never boast in ourselves, that we would loudly boast and brag in Jesus Christ. That we would be unashamed of who Jesus is and what he has done. And that we would eagerly call those who need to know him to repentance and faith. Not only because of the judgment to come, but because of the sheer joy and blessing of being in Jesus Christ. We thank you for this day. We lift up those who are not with us today. Comfort them, be with them where they are. Remind them of your love. Keep them by your spirit. And Lord, bring us back next Sunday to continue with one another in the word. And in your holy name we pray, amen.